And we're going to jump into our study. We're in our series on the life of Jesus, going through the events of his life as they happened in chronological order. And we're going to be picking things up right where we left them off last week. Jesus has just healed a man who's been crippled for 38 years, but he's done so on the Sabbath, the holy day of rest. This was against the man-made Jewish laws of the day, but it wasn't against the law of Moses, the the law that God had given to Moses for the nation of Israel. Last week we read verse 16 of John 5, which says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. He had broken their rules, their laws, not God's laws, but man's laws. And we ended up last week pointing out that this is the moment when the religious leadership of Israel determines to kill Jesus. He's undermining their authority and they hate him for it. How much do they hate him? They sought to kill him. That's that's pretty much at the top of the scale, I think, when it comes to hate. So remember in John's gospel as well, just always want to remind you when it uses the phrase the Jews, it's always referring to the Jewish leadership. It's not referring to all Jews. It's referring to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers of the day. Amazingly today, we're going to read the continuation of that conversation between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. And Jesus is basically going to pour gasoline on this fire. He's not going to do the kind of thing that many people would expect where Jesus would go, I'm so sorry that I offended you. Let's hug it out. Hug it out. Jesus is going to pour gasoline on this fire and take things to a whole nother level. Things are going to get very extreme, very, very, very fast. He's going to go all out in terms of being blunt, and he's going to drive these leaders crazy with anger. This chapter, John chapter 5, is also one of the most important theological passages in the whole Bible because Jesus is going to be emphatically direct about who he is. And in all of this, we're going to discover the heartbeat that drives Jesus' whole life. So as we begin today's study, Jesus is about to give an incredible, insightful, important defense of why he had the authority to disregard their Jewish laws and traditions. Why he was allowed to just disregard them. You know, to state the obvious, Jesus was special. I think everybody pretty much agrees about that. He lived the most attractive, most powerful, most beautiful, joyful, and wonderful life anyone has ever lived, ever. There's a quality about him, a a joy that radiated from him, a a peace within him, a love flowing through him that just drew people to him. People were just drawn to him. Later on in his ministry, Jesus would tell people that he had come so that they could have life abundantly. And when he does that, nobody says, but we don't even see this abundant life in you. They all instinctively understand that he's offering them what he himself possesses, and they want it. Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness more than any of his fellows. See, he was a happy guy. He was full of joy. It was unparalleled in any other person. And one would think that the the secret of such attractiveness and vibrance and life and power would be very complex. You might think Jesus understood esoteric mysteries of the universe and, and lived a very difficult life doing difficult things that's, that, that would be impossible for you or I to do. But through the remainder of this chapter, we're going to see the simplicity of Jesus' life, something you and I can all experience, the simple principle that produced everything good in the life of Jesus. And what was the secret? In the following defense that Jesus gives, we're not going to see just why he healed on the Sabbath, but we're going to see the foundational principle that governed his whole life, and that was his relationship with his heavenly Father. If I were to ask you about the defining principle of your life, you might say, it's my job, or it's my family, or it's this vision, or it's this goal. But as valid as those things are, they're they're insignificant compared to your relationship with the Father. They're insignificant. That's all there is to it. No other agenda, no other ministry, no other vision, no other priority. Jesus is so focused on his relationship with the Father that nothing else mattered. And you hear that and you think, well, he sounds like a guy who would be dropping the ball all over the place. But the absolute opposite is true. Because Jesus had a relationship with the Father as though nothing else mattered. He was freed up to enjoy incredible relationships, a fruitful life, and a productive ministry. That was all the byproduct of focusing on one thing, his relationship with the Father. 
In today's study, we're going to see four characteristics of Jesus' relationship with his Father. And those are the first four things on your outline. We're going to go back to those at various points throughout the message. But let's dig in in verse 17 of John chapter 5. Verse 17, it says, But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. This is your first fill-in. Jesus reflects his Father. Write that down. Jesus reflects his Father. Jesus' answer is very simple. He says, My father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. Wait a minute. Doesn't God rest on the Sabbath like he did on the seventh day of creation? Well, does the sun still rise on the Sabbath? Does the rain still fall on the Sabbath? Does the air still mix just right so that life is sustained on earth on the Sabbath? Is the universe still held together on the Sabbath? Yes, on all counts. God is still active holding all things together on the Sabbath. You see, the Bible doesn't say that God needed to rest on the seventh day. It simply says that he did. The Bible says in multiple other places like Isaiah that God does not get weary. He doesn't get tired. He never sleeps. He never has need of rest. He imposed a day of rest upon creation for our benefit. In his wisdom, the Lord said, you need a day to rest. You need a day to slow down and remember me. You need a day to slow down and recognize the good things that I have put in your life. You need a day to regain perspective. You need a Sabbath. Jesus is saying, my father doesn't need a Sabbath. And so neither do I. But what's what's Jesus really saying? In case there's any confusion about what Jesus is really saying when he says that, the Bible's going to make it crystal clear. Grab your pens because you're going to need to underline something in your Bibles. Verse 18, Therefore, so because he said this, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father. Underline this. Making himself equal with God making himself equal with God. Why were they so zealous to kill him? It tells us right here, he was making himself equal with God. They hated him for claiming to be Messiah, God in the flesh. Write this down. Jesus claims to be equal with God in nature. He's claiming to be equal with God in nature. The phrase making himself equal with God, for those of you who are Bible junkies, employs a a present perfect tense verb. The idea is he's continually doing it. He's not a one-time statement. He is continually equal with the Father is what he's saying. Here's why this is so important. Because every now and then you'll hear someone say something like this. Did you know? I know you're a Christian. But did you know that Jesus actually never even said he was God? Jesus never made the claim that he was God. You need to lovingly tell that person that they're an idiot. Lovingly. Lovingly. But you need to tell them to read their Bible. This is why John 5 is so crucial. There is no confusion about what Jesus said. You know how we know? Because of the reaction of the Pharisees. Because they desired to kill him because of what he had just said. It cannot mean anything else than exactly what it says he is. He made himself equal with God That's why they killed Jesus. Never forget, they didn't crucify Jesus because he was a love revolutionary. They didn't crucify Jesus because he was a great guy or a good teacher. They crucified him for one reason. He made the claim that he was God, equal with the Father. That's why they wanted to kill him. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and every other false religion and cult does not recognize Jesus as God. It's one of the dividing lines between what is Christianity, what is true, and what is not. Every other cult and false religion seeks to make Jesus something less than equal with the Father. That's why they killed him. He made the claim he was equal with God. Verse 19 says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. You might want to underline, do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Here we see Jesus again simply reflecting the Father, simply doing what the Father does, but we're also reminded how Jesus does that. You know, Jesus had less than we have. It's called the doctrine of kenosis, and the doctrine of kenosis is the doctrine that Jesus emptied himself. It's what Paul spoke about in Philippians, that Jesus emptied himself of his divine nature, all of his superpowers, if you will, and came to earth as a man. 
Still God, because he is still the son of God, still equal with God, but he emptied himself and he ministered and lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word. That is what's so astounding to me about the ministry of Jesus. Everything he did, we have the ability to do because we have the same Holy Spirit. We even have a bigger Bible. We got the New Testament now. It's astonishing. That's why Jesus said, before you think, no, that's crazy. Jesus said to his disciples, you'll do greater things than you even saw me do. Why did he say that? Because he knew, listen, I'm leaving you with the Holy Spirit. The same thing that empowered my ministry, I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. The potential to do the things that I've done is within you. If you'll walk with the Father like I walked with the Father. It's staggering. The doctrine of kenosis. You see, in the Garden of Eden, the forbidden fruit came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know what's good. I know what's evil. I can now intellectually figure it out. So what actually happened when they ate from that? What happened is they lost this childlike innocence they had. See, before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they were unsure about anything, the relationship with God as their father, Adam and Eve, would be, Father, I don't know about this. What, what do you want me to do here? Let me run it by you. Let's have a conversation. When they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, suddenly they understood and they said, you know, I don't, I don't need to consult you anymore. I know. And I'll do what I want. And they lost this childlike innocence of going to the Father and living in submission to the Father. You know, the scriptures are our foundation and our guidance, but let's be real. We need the Holy Spirit desperately every single day. Can you say amen to that? Amen. We need the Holy Spirit because sometimes even after searching the scriptures, an issue seems gray, not black and white. And in those moments, we need to recover that childlike faith that goes to the Father and says, Father, what do you want me to do here? How do you want me to handle this? Stopping to do that is crucial to the Christian life. It's the humility to say, I'm tired of messing things up. Tired of messing things up. So, Father, would you lead me in this? Would you guide me in this? And then trusting that he is. That if you've asked him, he is. He's doing that. It's humility to go to the Father when you need help. Verse 20, it says, For the Father loves, underline loves, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Some of you know in Greek they have multiple words for the word love. It's much better than the English language because in English we just have one. So I love my wife and I love coffee. But I don't love them with the same level of passion. Well, that might be a bad analogy. But uh, anyway, different things, different levels of love. So in the Greek they have different words relating to love. And some of you might have heard of this before, might be interested to know that, that in verse 20 when it says the father loves the son, the word for love there is not agape. It's not agape, it's phileo. And phileo is a love between equals, sometimes called a brotherly love, but it is a love between equals. So when Jesus is saying the father loves the son, he's saying we enjoy an equality in our relationship. That's the nature of the love between the father and the son. So as he's talking to these Pharisees, you've got to get the picture. He's basically, it's like he's just standing there pouring gasoline on this fire. I mean, they must have been just exploding with anger when he says, yeah, Father loves the Son, but as an equal. That must have been going out of their minds. So write this down. Jesus is secure in his Father. Jesus is secure in his Father. Man, what, what a day you and I will have today. If we'll just say, hey, listen, the Father loves me. He has shown me everything that I need to navigate my way through this day. And I know he's going to do the same thing tomorrow. I know he's going to show me greater things down the road. I don't know what they are, but I know that they're coming. How simple life would be if we found our security not in what our spouse or the world or what our friends think about us, but what the Father thinks about us. It would free us up in an incredible way, emotionally and spiritually. How does the Father feel about you? When you were at your worst, 
when you were at your most unlovable, when you were at your lowest, darkest point that you wouldn't want anyone in this room to know about or be able to go back and see, at that moment, Jesus died for you. He died for you, literally, physically. How dare we ever say, I'm just not sure that God loves me. How dare we? He demonstrated his love with his blood and with his life. He didn't just die for us collectively. He died for you personally. He died for me personally so that we would never doubt his love. How much more simple and stable would I be if I could learn to consistently say, the Father loves me. He's given me everything I need. He keeps me in the loop with everything that I need to know right now. And he's going to do greater and greater things in my life. That's enough. That's all I need to know. I'm good for today. Verse 21, Jesus continues with this theme of being equal with the Father. And he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. My Father raises the dead, so I raise the dead too. Anything confusing about that statement? Nothing. It's incredible, but it's pretty straightforward. So write this down. Jesus claims to be equal with God in power. In power. And then in verse 22 it says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. You might want to underline all judgment to the Son. This is an interesting thing to note here. Jesus is the only member of the Trinity who will ever judge anyone. The Father has given him that right, that authority. So get, get this, when people say, you know, there are many different ways to God. Jesus is just one of the ways. Remember, no one will ever stand before Buddha. No one will ever stand before Muhammad. No one will ever stand before Krishna. Everyone will stand before Jesus, the only judge. And here's what's interesting about Jesus as the judge of humanity. He's fully qualified. He's fully qualified to judge. He has walked more than a mile in our shoes. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. He experienced pain, heartache, temptation, disappointment, all of it. He's fully qualified to judge the human experience. And nobody will be able to say, you don't know what it's like, so you can't judge me. Because he does. He does know. Write this down. Jesus is the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate judge. Why has the Father committed all judgment to the Son? Big, big verse here. Huge verse here. You might want to underline all of verse 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What does the Father want? He wants his Son, Jesus Christ, to be honored in the same way that he is. The Father doesn't want one level of honor for himself and a lower level of honor for his Son, Jesus Christ. He wants the same level of honor. And then make sure you have that massive verse underlined. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You know, I I still run into this idea all the time. We sort of get this idea that the Father is the one who's really God. And Jesus is is, is something else. He's something else on the diagram, right? There's God is the circle. He's the Father. Then there's a line coming out, another circle that says Jesus. And we get the idea that, okay, God's in the middle. And maybe there's another line and another circle going to Muhammad. Maybe there's another line and another circle going to Buddha. Maybe... There's all these different lines, and they're all just different ways to get to the same place, to get to the same Father. Here's the problem. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very simply, if you don't honor Jesus, you don't honor the Father. Period. Nothing to be confused about. Even Jews today who are alive and believe in Yahweh, who think they believe in the Father, do not honor him at all. 
Because Jesus said, if you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. You cannot bypass Jesus Christ and just honor the Father. He's the only way. He's the only way. He's equal with the Father. Verse 24, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from life into death. Every morning I try and do a, a Bible study with Sydney and Noah, and we're doing John 5 this past week, and this was our memory verse. I, I love how it says, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Has everlasting life. The believer already possesses everlasting life. It's not something you get later. It's yours now. It's mine now if we believe in him. And then I have this underlined in my Bible. It says, shall not come into judgment. That's Jesus Christ himself telling us that those who receive him and believe in him will not be judged for their sins. You won't. And notice what it says next, but has passed from death into life. Has, past tense. It's already happened if you believe and follow Jesus. So how does this work? It works like this. What happened on the cross was the judging of our sin. Our sin, for those who believe in Jesus, has already been judged That's what we saw happen on the cross. That's what was happening. Our sin was being judged on Jesus instead of us. Our sin has already been judged. There is no more left to discuss for the person who believes on Jesus. It has already been judged. It's already been dealt with for all eternity. Have you ever heard somebody say something like, you know, when we get to heaven, it's going to be this really big movie screen. You're going to stand before the Lord And they're going to play your whole life on this movie screen. All the bad and all the good. And then the people who belong to Jesus will go into heaven. And I would always think, heaven is going to be so awkward. So awkward. Because we're all going to be walking around thinking about the worst things we've ever done. And none of us will want to be friends with anybody. I'm like... It's going to be so anticlimactic, like there'll be all eternity there. They'll be watching the worst things I've ever done in my life. And then they'll be like, but you get to come into heaven. It'll be like, thanks. (laughs) You know, here's what you need to know. There's no giant movie screen anywhere in the Bible. And here's what you need to know. If you're a believer, your sin has already been judged upon Jesus in your place. You've already received eternal life. There's not a judgment coming up that you will be going through. There's not. You are going to the presence of God because you are his child right now. You're his child right now. He recognizes you. He knows you. You are clean and holy before him. It's incredible. It's incredible. There is no awkwardness if you believe on Jesus that you have to dread in eternity. There's nothing awkward coming. I promise. I promise. Jesus tells us right here, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Romans 8, 1, Paul says it like this, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In other places in the Bible, Paul explains that what believers will ultimately be judged for is not their sin, but for righteousness, for the things we did for Christ during our life, for eternal rewards, eternal treasures. It's not a judgment that determines your salvation. We're saved by grace, not by works. So our works are never going to be put on a scale to determine if we're saved or not. Our works are going to be judged for righteousness, what we did for Jesus Christ during our life. Verse 25, let's keep going. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead, the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. The Father raises the dead, I raise the dead too. This would have been a mind blower for the Jews. 
when Jesus said this because they, they believed that only God was the keeper of three specific keys. The keys of the heavens, which he used to make the rain fall. The key to the womb, which he used when a couple conceived. And the key to the grave, which he used when the dry bones came to life in Ezekiel 37. But Jesus is literally telling them, I have the same key. I have the same key. Just as the Father opens the grave, I have that key. It's on my keychain right now. Write this down. Jesus claims to be equal with God in authority. Equal with God in authority. He has the power to grant life because he's the son of God, and he has the power to judge because he's the son of man. Verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This is heavy. There's two resurrections. There's two lives after death. A resurrection of life. That's what's coming for every believer. And a resurrection to condemnation. Some of your Bibles might even say damnation. It's coming for every unbeliever. Who's going to resurrected life? Those who have done good is what Jesus says here. So what is good? And that's going to be answered in the very next chapter of John. In John 6, Jesus is asked, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So what they're asking is, what must we do that is good? What must we do that's good enough for God's standard? Jesus answered and said to him, this is is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus said, there's only one good work that you need to do. Believe in me. Believe in me. Everything flows out of that. Jesus said, the key to living a Christian life is so simple. Believe in me. And then concern yourself with a relationship with the Father. Seek him first. That's it. Everything else will flow out of that. No long list. Everything flows out of that. The work that we do, the work is believing on Jesus. That's the only work that we do. So who's going to be resurrected to condemnation? Jesus says those who have done evil. And what is evil? Jesus spells that out in Matthew 12. He says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men either in this age or the age to come. Jesus is saying explicitly, he's saying, listen, all sin is forgiven. All sin is forgiven, except one, rejecting Jesus. If you reject Jesus, I can't forgive you for that. All sin is forgiven. Even people who spend eternity condemned, separated from God, are not going there for the long laundry list of sins they do. Jesus said, listen, everything's forgiven. They're going for one sin. Rejecting me. Rejecting me. There's only one thing you can do to save yourself. One work. Believe in Jesus. And there's only one thing you can do to spend eternity separated from God. One work. Not believing in Jesus. He lays it out. Write this down. Those that are born twice die once. Those that are born once die twice. That's why Jesus says you need to be born again spiritually. You're born physically. He says, listen, if you are born again spiritually, you're only going to die once. This physical body's going to die one day. But if you're only born once, if you're not born again, he says you're going to die twice. You're going to die here. You're going to die in eternity. Heavy, heavy stuff, but Jesus is being very, very clear. Can anyone accuse Jesus of not laying this out clearly? of being a little obscure, a little vague. Everyone will be resurrected for one of those two destinies, life or condemnation. The response we often hear is, you know, don't be so narrow-minded. Don't be so narrow-minded in this thinking that there's only one way to God. Be broad-minded. Be open-minded. Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. There are few who find it. And I just want to be clear as well that 
as we're reading about resurrection and things like this, we don't believe in a period of stasis that you die and stay in your grave for thousands of years and then wake up from asleep. The Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's an immediate resurrection upon death in a new dimension, basically. If you can use the word dimension without sounding weird, and if you can't, just pretend I didn't use the word dimension, okay? Verse 30, it says this. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. This is number four in your outlines. Jesus is submitted to his Father. He submitted to his Father. Jesus had no program, no agenda, no vision other than the Father's will. Man, if we could live like that, if we could live like that saying, I only have one goal for my life, to do the will of the Father. My goal is not to make it easier on myself or or better for myself, not to find fulfillment in what I do or to establish myself financially. I just want to do the Father's will and trust that everything else will fall into place by the power of the Spirit within me. As believers, we're called to be like Jesus. He's the example. He's the example. Following Jesus is a moment-by-moment commitment to live under the Father's will. And when we do that, God can direct us. And when we don't, we mess up. Anybody had any other experience than that? When we're submitted to the Father, things go well. They work out. There's health. There's life. There's love. There's joy. There's peace. When we don't, things go bad. We're all experts at screwing things up on our own. I'm an expert too, absolutely. But it takes a lifetime to learn that, doesn't it? How many times have you found yourself in a place or a situation where you think, how did I get here? And you realize that you, you just stopped looking to the Lord for guidance. And you think, when, what am I going to learn? How many, how many times am I going to have to go through this before I finally say, I can't fix me. I can't even manage my own life. I need to be led by the Father. Verse 31, Jesus says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. A more accurate translation of what Jesus is saying is he's saying, If I bear witness of myself, you will say my witness is not true. You will say my witness is not true. Two or three witnesses were required to establish a matter under Jewish law. And Jesus is going to point to four witnesses who testify to him being equal with the Father. Verse 32, he says, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, you might want to underline John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So the first witness is John the Baptist. Jesus says, John the Baptist, you guys recognize him. You recognize him as a prophet. He's the last Old Testament prophet. You recognize that he was legit. He was talking about me. Verse 36, he says, but I have a greater witness than John. For the works, underline the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So verse 36 is just his works. He says, my works testify to what I do. How many people you got around you right now? Healing lepers, healing the crippled, making the blind see. Stand up. Anybody? No? My works testify to the fact that I am God in the flesh. But he's not only talking about miracles. He's also talking about specific things in the Old Testament that the Scripture said the Messiah would do when he came. I put it on your outline. You can go read it in your own time this week. Take a look at something like Daniel 9.24 where it lays out the specific things that the Messiah is going to do. Jesus says, I'm doing those things. Everything that the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would do, I'm doing it. My works testify to who I am. Verse 37 And the Father himself, underline the Father himself, who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. The Father validated the Son when at Jesus' baptism, he spoke from the heavens and said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Did you know that there are two other places in Scripture in the life and ministry of Jesus when the Father spoke audibly again to confirm that Jesus was in fact his Son? God spoke in the middle of Jesus' ministry in John 12 
And then he spoke towards the end of his ministry again in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here's what's interesting. In each of those instances, Jesus is talking about the same thing. He's talking about the fact that he has to die, that his mission is to lay down his life for the lost. His mission is to sacrifice his life to the will of the Father. And every time Jesus does that, the Father speaks from heaven and says, that's my boy. That's my boy. He's about my business. That's how you know he's my boy. You guys need to listen to him. He is all about his father's business. So put this on your outline. The third witness is simply the father. The father. That's the key. You know, Jesus' validation didn't come from John the Baptist. His validation didn't even come from his works. He didn't go home and say, I feel good about myself because I cured a blind person today. I'm awesome. Came directly from the Father. Is your validation coming from your own accomplishments, your work, your relationships, what other people say about you? Let me tell you, it'll never be enough. It will never be enough. You'll always be one pat on the back shy of real satisfaction and real contentment. Validation for your life isn't going to come from somebody telling you how good you are. It's not going to come from your own achievements. It comes from hearing the voice of the Father saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. That's the only validation that brings security and stability and satisfaction. It's the only validation that will make you truly effective in life because when you have that validation from the Father, you don't need it from anybody else. And I cannot tell you how much healthier our relationships would be if we didn't need validation from each other. If we didn't need validation. How many relationship issues just come down to I'm not being validated in the way that I need to be? Sometimes we're not being validated in a way that our partner, our friends are even capable of doing. Only the Father can do it. Verse 38, Jesus says, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. He's speaking of himself. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He's pointing out a tragic irony. He's saying, you've devoted your lives to studying the scriptures and you're missing the fact that they're all about me. They're all pointing to me. You're seeking eternal life, but you refuse to come to the one person who has it, me. It's right in front of you and you're missing it. The Greek word for search that's used there is eruneo which means to track the scent. The idea is like a lion hunting bleeding prey or a bloodhound going after something. Jesus is saying, search the scriptures. He's saying, I'm in there. Follow the scarlet thread. Follow the trail of my blood that runs through the scriptures. I'm in there if you'll just look. So write this down. The fourth of the fourfold witnesses, the scriptures. The scriptures testify to who Jesus is. And then in verse 41, Jesus continues, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I wish I had time to break this down further, but we need to stay on track. So I'm just going to tell you as quickly as I can what Jesus is referring to in this verse. He's referring to false messiahs that are going to come after him. People who are going to come after him and say, I'm the messiah you've been waiting for. And there would be several in the coming decades between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. There would be a catastrophic guy named Simeon ben Kozba in A.D. 132 who would basically lead a bunch of Israelites to be slaughtered because he led them against the Romans and said he was the messiah. But Jesus is also referring in particular to the person we most commonly refer to as the Antichrist. I'm going to explain to you why. Here's the thing. My explanation is going to leave you with a million questions, but it's the briefest explanation I can give. If you want to pursue it more, 
I really recommend the book, The Final Act by Chuck Smith. It's going to lay it out, but I'm going to lay it out real fast for you, what he's talking about. The short version is this. After the rapture, after the church is taken up to be with Jesus, very quickly there's going to begin a significant seven-year period of time that the Bible talks about. It's going to be split into two three-and-a-half-year periods. During that first three-and-a-half-year period, the person we commonly refer to as the Antichrist is going to rise to prominence on the world political stage. He's going to lead a federation of ten European countries, a European Union, one might say. So this has been in the Bible for thousands of years, and he's going to broker peace in the Middle East between the Jews and the Palestinians. He's going to do the impossible. What politicians believe can't be done, he's going to do it. He's going to broker peace. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to lead the rebuilding of the actual, literal, physical temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. He's going to rebuild it. And if you think that's crazy, go home and check out templeinstitute.org. It's an organization, a group of people, zealous for their Messiah and the Lord in Israel right now. And here's what their mission is. Their mission is to see the temple rebuilt. Do you know that today the only reason there's not animal sacrifices going on is because the temple isn't there? They would be doing it today if the temple was there because they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. The Jews don't. So the Temple Institute, what they've done is they have rebuilt every single article that belonged in the temple. Every chalice, every lampstand, everything. The garments specifically to biblical specs. And they're all there right now. They literally have everything prepared in anticipation of the day the temple is going to be there. They're ready to go as soon as the building is built. So... The Antichrist is going to lead the rebuilding of the temple. The Jews today believe that that is going to be one of the distinguishing characteristics of their Messiah. They believe we're going to know a person is the Messiah we've been waiting for when they rebuild the temple. They believe that right now. So when the Antichrist does that, they're going to receive him as their Messiah. After that three and a half year period, right halfway through it, the Antichrist is going to go into the temple, on the Temple Mount. He's going to sit on a throne and declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped by the nations of the world. In that moment, the eyes of the Jews are going to be opened. They're going to realize that he is the Antichrist. He's not the Messiah. That's also the moment that the Lord is going to open and remove the spiritual blindness from the Jews. And they're going to be able to see and realize that Jesus was the Messiah that they're waiting for. I know that's a little head spinning and a little fast, but this is what Jesus is ultimately referring to when he says, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. He says, listen, I didn't come promoting myself. I have a fourfold witness here. He says, another's going to come who's going to be the greatest self-promoter you've ever seen. And that's who the Antichrist is going to be. And he says, you're going to receive him if he promotes himself. That's what he's referring to. Like I said, read, read the book. I'm sorry I can't go into it more. I feel like I'm teasing like a spinoff TV show or something <laughs> like that. But I, ha- I have to stay on track. Verse 44, Jesus says, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? He's saying you're so concerned about being honored by each other, about being honored by people, that you can't even see who God is. You're blinded because you're so concerned what other people think about you. They're more interested in honor from people than honor from God. Proverbs says, the fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. Proverbs also says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus only cared about the honor that came from the Father, not the honor that came from men. And that's why he was free to fulfill the Father's will. And I I really believe this is what drove the Pharisees crazy. They loved the fact that people looked to them as the religious elite. And here comes Jesus. And what makes him so dangerous is he doesn't care what they think about him. He doesn't care. He's so secure. If he teaches and nobody responds as long as he's done the will of the Father, he's good. He's good. He's not getting his self-esteem fixed from his ministry. He's not going, oh, thank God I fed 5,000. I was starting to feel a little down about myself. I think I'll go walk on some water. It wasn't how Jesus operated, you know? He was so secure, and it drove these guys crazy. Drove them crazy. Because there's nothing more dangerous for the kingdom of God than the person 
who gets their validation from the Father and doesn't care about getting it from anything else. That person is dangerous. That person's like a mercenary for the kingdom of God. They are secure in their relationship with God and they can do great things because whatever the results are, it's okay. I'm getting my validation from God. That's the only thing I need. It's all that I need. Jesus continues and says in verse 45, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Underline this. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now Jesus is getting personal. It's like he's talking about their mama. This is really personal, okay? Moses is their rock star. He's their guy on the pedestal. We are children of Moses. They love Moses. They got Moses t-shirts. These guys have Moses posters on their home with the Ten Commandments. Love, love, love Moses. Moses action figures when they're growing up. They borderline idolize the guy. But Jesus says, listen, what Moses wrote, he wrote about me. And if you won't even believe Moses... You're not going to believe me. I'm not going to try and convince you. You won't even believe me. It's just another reminder that when a person is spiritually blind, when they've made up their mind not to believe in Jesus, no evidence is ever going to be sufficient. No evidence is going to be sufficient. It takes a supernatural miracle of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. That's the only thing that will work. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. I want to just share this really quickly. There is a controversy in Christianity about the authorship of the Torah. The Torah is also called the Pentateuch. It's just the first five books of the Bible. And there's this controversy you hear every now and then. Well, Moses didn't really write the Torah. It was a bunch of different authors because a group of guys got together and said, you know, well, they're using different names for God. And in one place, they call him Elohim. In another place, they call him Yahweh. So it must be different authors. And they came up with this thing called the documentary hypothesis. Here's what you need to know, okay? It's all nonsense. It is all nonsense. Why do I say that? Because Jesus just told me. He said, Moses wrote about me. And in fact, there are over 20 places in the Gospels where Jesus attributes the writings of Moses to Moses. I mention that because there are so many interesting things that you can study in Christianity Don't waste your time on pseudo-scholarship like that. It's a fool's errand. Those guys are literally trying to make Jesus a liar because he mentions over 20 times in Scripture that Moses wrote the things that are attributed to Moses, the Torah. And we know Jesus is not a liar, so please don't waste your time on that. Here is a simple, simple experiment. Almost done here today. Go through the next 24 hours just saying, you know what? I want to be a reflection of the Father in every conversation, in every interaction. I'm going to depend on the Father. I'm, I'm not going to make any real decisions without consulting the Father. I mean real decisions, not like what am I going to wear today. My security is in the Father. I'm going to believe that He loves me because He proved it on the cross. I'm going to believe that. I'm going to be in unity the Father with the Father. I'm, I'm just going to follow His example in everything I do. I'm going to be submitted to the Father I'm not going to try and force things on my own will. And my validation is only going to come from the Father. I'm not going to expect anybody else to make me feel like I'm significant and worth something. Just the Father. I'm not going to fish for compliments. I'm not going to look for approval from men. My only concern is the Father. Not what the world says about me, nothing else, but only how the Father sees me. I'm going to rest in the promises of of His Word. If you try that tomorrow, if you try that tomorrow, I really believe that if we could do that, tomorrow would be the most successful, wonderful, powerful, joyful, fruitful day of our lives. Really, I really believe that. And my prayer is that some of us today might make the discovery that we can be set free from burdensome agendas and vision and e- even ministry. We can be set free from burdensome things to live for the Father and just for Him. Just to focus on that one thing and trust He's going to bring everything else to happen the way that it needs to happen. He didn't ask us to drive it. He didn't say, you know, get your junk together. Start making your life matter. He said, listen, just worry about me. Worry about becoming more like me. I'll lead you where you need to go. I'll change you where you need to change. I'll grow you where you need to grow. But it's never worked for me. 
when I tried to do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do in me. It's never worked. It's never worked. Because Jesus was so secure in the Father. Because he never doubted for a second that the Father loved him. He was able to obey the Father through beatings, through torture, even through crucifixion and death. Because never for a second did he doubt that the Father loved him. He never doubted that. It's the only way he could have made it through that. He had an anchor. He had an anchor. And sometimes when life is just beating us up, the real reason is that we don't have an anchor. You are being tossed to and fro all over the place. There's no anchor holding you in place. But if you can know that you know that you know the Father loves you, that's your anchor. The Father loves me. The Father loves you. And we're going to have some time to worship, but you might need to just say it out loud. Jesus made the statement. He said, listen, the Father loves the Son. He loves the Son. It's a fact. You might need to just say it out loud with your name in there. The Father loves Steve. The Father loves Susie. The Father loves Jeff. When your validation comes from the Father, well then, you're free to enjoy great relationships. You're free to enjoy life. You're free to not expect other people to be God for you. When your validation comes from the Father, because the Father loves you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? You, uh, you know yourself better than I do. And the Holy Spirit knows you even better than you do. So I, I want to ask that you would just be honest before the Lord. He knows everything about you already. He's usually just waiting for us to be honest with ourselves before him. But I want to ask you, where does your validation come from? Where does it come from? Let me be very honest and transparent with you. When my work doesn't go well, when it doesn't get the results that I hope for, and that just demolishes me emotionally, man, that's a sign. Way too much of my validation is coming from what I do. Way too much. If you don't hear just the right words at just the right time from your spouse or your friends, and it just makes you feel worthless, man, you're getting way too much of your validation from people. If you need constant recognition to feel like you matter, you need to get your validation from the Father. The validation is this. The Father loves you. He loves you. So in this coming time, I believe we need to let go of some things. We need to say, God, listen, I've, I've been caring about this thing so intensely because it's what validates me. If I'm successful in this, if I can have this, if I can get to this, if I can achieve this. Those are all good things, but God, my validation needs to come from you. Help me to let those things go. Ask the Lord to reveal things to you about yourself. And it's okay to ask the Lord to affirm you. It's okay to ask for that. So take a minute, keep your eyes closed, keep your heads bowed, and then we're going to worship in just a moment.